Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 187th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Emlyn Miles Mattingly. Emlyn is the founder of Gen Next Wealth, an independent RIA based in Madeira, California, that provides wealth management for 70 client households. What's unique about Emlyn, though, is the way he's decided to focus his advisory firm on working with underserved communities of color, as an advisor of color himself. And in the process, is moving his advisory firm business model away from assets under management and toward a monthly subscription model that allows him to expand who he serves, all in pursuit of Emlyn's goal to change the complexion of wealth. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Emlyn structures his monthly subscription business model, how he started out charging $100 a month, but quickly raised it to $300 a month, how he developed bronze, silver, and gold tiers that all provide a baseline of advice, but vary in the depth of their tax, insurance, and estate implementation support, why Emlyn decided to include filing annual tax returns for clients in his ongoing advice fee, but then outsource the tax preparation work itself, and how the change in business model is now accelerating his growth path. We also talk about Emlyn's actual financial planning process itself, the key question he asks at the beginning of every introductory meeting to support his sales process, the technology he uses to automate his new client onboarding process and the outsourcing provider he hired to help build it, why his initial planning process starts not with retirement projections, but analysis of the client's monthly household cash flow and budget, and the ongoing client service calendar that Emlyn is developing to support clients year-round and earn the ongoing monthly fees he charges. And be certain to listen to the end, where Emlyn shares the real-world challenges of trying to succeed as an advisor of color serving communities of color the ups and downs of trying to build your career in the early years and find the personal confidence to charge what you're really worth, and the importance of finding a support network of advisor peers to get through the inevitable ups and downs of building your firm, and in particular, where to look as an advisor of color. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Emlyn Miles Matting. Welcome, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks for having me, Michael. I'm really excited to have you on today. I've I've really kind of admired from afar for a while now the you know, your advisory firm, your your path, your trajectory. You know, we we've crossed paths at a at a few events over the years, but you know, I, I've really been following lately a podcast that you run as well called Minority Money with this awesome tagline that I love, changing the complexion of wealth right? and, and all of the challenging dynamics that we have around the distribution of wealth in the US and the intersection of the ra- racial wealth gap and a lot of other challenges that we have in the country. And so, you know, obviously we don't, we don't have a lot of advisors of color in the industry. We have, I think, even, even fewer that have taken up the way that you have kind of a, a a passion and literally a business focus into serving minority community communities and as you put it trying to change the complexion of wealth. And so I'm just I'm I'm excited to talk today about even just some of these kind of challenging but reality intersections of money, race, what it means to be a financial advisor of color, what it means to serve communities of color and and 
how all this financial planning stuff comes together when we intersect it with what's still a very significant racial wealth gap in the country. Yeah, it's it's it, it is there is a you know as you know it's it's no secret to anyone. And when I was coming up with the podcast and just the name of it, I mean we we wrestled with the name because I didn't know how it would go if we came out and just said this is who we serve. But I felt that I owed it not only to my 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 clients, but I owed it to minorities that didn't have a place to find information that they may need. And so we you know kind of. Drew just said it's going to be the Minority Money Podcast, and and when we did that, you know that that tagline changing the complexion of wealth just 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 happened, and and it was like wow that that's really good. You know, I started listening to it, and people started telling me that they really liked it, and then trying to understand the magnitude of what that meant. Right, I think the name came before I understood how big of a. <laughs> like, oh wait, what have I actually bit off here? All right. Yeah. Yeah. So. All right. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. So that I was like, oh wow, this is this is a this is a big big undertaking. And so knowing that I wouldn't be able to do it by myself, I began to you know reach out to different people, and you know then the podcast started happening, and the guests kept coming on, and they kept you know wanting to help. And so most almost every guest that's been on has come back and and helped in some capacity with things that we're trying to you know initiatives we're trying to move and and just bringing awareness to people of color and helping them with their finances. So it's been, it's been awesome. I, I love, I love the podcast, not, not just cause I'm hosting it, but just the mission of it and what it's trying to do and yeah, not, 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 yeah, it's just, I, I love it. Well, and it's one of these things that's struck me for a long time about our industry that I feel like we, I don't know, we never quite acknowledge and embrace, you know, the, the overwhelming majority of the industry has, has existed in a, if you want a job here, it's really simple. Bring your natural market list of the 50 friends and family you know that you will call on in the first 12 or 24 months that you're here. And like that's been for, you know, quote unquote forever, the the standard entry pathway into being a financial advisor, maybe only recently changing in in the past decade that there are some some other career paths now that are not business development to your friends and family list out of the gate. But uh, just the 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 challenge to me that I feel like is is never acknowledged in the industry. Like when our entry pathway is, you have to bring a list of your friends and family, and we have a you know humongous racial wealth gap. Like I don't even understand why our industry is so surprised that it's very difficult to move the needle on racial diversity when our primary pathway is come from whoever your friends and family are who have money. And lo and behold, when communities of color have less wealth, they have weaker friends and weaker, quote unquote, friends and family lists. And then they have more difficulty coming into the industry and surviving and being successful. And then we say like, we need to recruit more racial diversity without acknowledging like, unless you're going to magically solve a racial wealth gap, like recruiting more advisors of color isn't necessarily going to solve the problem when you always make them start with their friends and family lists. And, and not only that, when you when you start with the friends and family, like you're saying, and they don't have the, you know, like normally, you know how it goes. AUM is the big the big focus. And so now we have advisors going out to try to work with families. And the only way they're either paid is to sell someone insurance, which, you know, we'll just call it what it is. And so now you have if you look at it, the disbursement of advisors in the industry is like advisors of color are heavily 
involved in the insurance part of the business because that was the only way that you could get into the business and be successful. Now, after that, then you'll see people that, you know, may get into asset management. And and then, then when that happens, typically you don't get to serve the community of people that look like you because they won't have the assets and it's, you know, there's, there's no way that you, you can't be successful in that business model without assets. And if it's hard to, to uh, kind of break through that. So I think it's, it's just like, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's just a, an ongoing thing that, that, that continues to be more difficult. So yeah, you're bringing up some very good points. You know, I, it, it is to me a, a striking thing and, and we've actually been working on some research on this, on the, on the Kitsis platform that we're, we're looking to put out soon. You know, we, we've talked for a long time in our industry now about how, you know, the racial diversity of advisors does not look like the racial diversity of America. But if you actually do the math, the, the racial diversity of advisors looks almost exactly like the racial diversity of wealth in America. Like the percentage of advisors who are black is almost exactly the same as the percentage of wealth in black families, like within a percentage point. And so we really have seemed to have kind of cornered our industry into a direction where ironically, as we're moving more and more away from product sales and towards other models like assets under management, you know, I, I think there's a lot of uh, good that comes around that of just being more advice-based and less product-based. But the, but the downside of that is, you know, if, if you're going to focus in an assets under management model, it, it really only works if you reach out to clients who have A to M in the AUM model. And when wealth is not well diversified, you don't end out with a lot of opportunities to to make that model work. So as so as you look at this as an advisor who, you know, has said like I I want to try to serve communities of color. Like how are you how are you thinking about this? How are you approaching this? Are are you trying to do a different kind of model? Or are you simply going to focus and say like I'm going to serve the people that I can serve, at least the members of the community of color who do have some wealth and I can fit this model too. Like, how are you approaching this as you've, I know I've said, like, I want to, I want to serve communities of color as my business. So great question. And, and the way that we do it is, you know, we, we have a subscription based model for the financial planning, and then we have an investment management model for people that are, you know, looking for investment management. So the way that we approach it is we, we always, you know, focus on the family because we're trying to change the complexion of wealth. And I believe that changing the complexion of wealth is going to start with for working with families. And when we do this, undoubtedly, we will find that there is some people of color, families of color that do have accumulated, have accumulated some wealth. And the thing that I've seen is that they kind of gravitate towards me and I've been able to find a lot of them because of the content that we're putting out. But we don't have your traditional, you know, the traditional model where it's just AUM. We focus a lot on the financial planning aspect of this and changing behaviors, talking about values, aligning those with their money. And so that's kind of the approach we get. And and we're, you know, we're really talking about cultural things. I have, you know, a large group of, of Latino clients. And so we're talking about different things. So I think it's, I think it's more about the approach when we're talking to them. Like, you know, if someone wants to plan for a quinceanera, okay, well, that's a part of the financial plan. We're putting that in there. I know culturally that's some things that some of the Latino clients that I have want to do. And we put that in the plan. 
So you're going to have to fill in for some listeners who may not be familiar with what you're talking about. Yeah. So a quinceanera is like a sweet 15 for a young lady. And what happens is they have a, you know, they have a party for that. And when a family wants to put that party together, it does have a cost to it. There's an expense to it. And so understanding that my job isn't to convince them not to do that. My job as their planner is to make sure that we plan for that. And so we, you know, these parties can go anywhere from 10 to 15 to 20, you know, sometimes 30 grand. It's like almost like a small wedding. And you have to have some cultural competence to be able to understand how to work with different people. Another thing that we have a lot is if I'm working with, you know, a first generation person that's a first generation that's first generation here or their families they're they're part of a family that's first generation here to the United States understanding that taking care of the family is a very very important thing i may be working with a child that has some parents that are you know back in the other country and they have to send money back to them and i have to you know that's okay there's nothing wrong with that i just need to figure out how we're going to make that work for them and those are kind of conversations that we're having with my clients it's it's a little different than than your normal financial planning practice because we have to be able to you know understand where the clients are at and meet them there and then build their plan and so to some extent i mean i suppose some people would would make the case like you know you're doing financial planning for goals as so many of us do financial planning for goals. You've just got a slightly different set of clientele with different goals based on, well, I guess literally their, their goals, but more generally like their, their, their families, their cultural context, what's important and meaningful for them that they want to plan for as part of the family. Exactly. And, 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 you know, there's, there's just different things like, I think a lot of times when I'm dealing with the minority family, we are trying to get them to operate from a place, uh, you know, get them out of a scarcity mentality. Uh, we have a thing that we call the minority money mindset, and we try to change that minority money mindset. Like I think what I've seen when I'm dealing with with you know, I'll, I'll say some of some of my some of my black clients going through that that process with them and talking about what they value, and then being able to find out you know, why some of the purchases were made on some things that probably didn't align with their value. And like, you know, we, we talk about some of the materialistic things that are purchased as an immediate instant gratification because of the unknown, like, you know, not understanding that this purchase now is going to impact what my financial future looks like later, because I want this instant gratification and talking to clients through those experiences and really getting them to unpack why they feel that it's so important to have this shiny thing to that, that in their mind resembles success. And and I'll speak for myself. Like when I can tell someone, you know, the first thing that I wanted to do after I bought my first car is I wanted to put some rims on it. I wanted to put, you know, some big speakers in the back and I wanted to make sure that it was not even thinking about this is I'm putting extra money into this car that's not even paid for. So it can look good for other people. And so like having those conversations and and dealing with that right up front and having them have the self-realization that, wow, I didn't even think about it that way. I've heard that so many times in meetings from clients that they just hadn't thought about, you know, finances in that way or the impact of the decisions that they make in their finances that way. So help me understand, I guess, just what is that? What do those conversations look like in practice? I mean, I'm, I'm not... 
like I'm not trying to be blithe about it, but I'm just imagining this like I you know, well, I'm gonna put some sweet dollars into my into new rims. You're like, but have you thought about a 401k plan? I'm like, I'm betting it doesn't quite go like that. Like, how does the how do these conversations go? Like, how how do you come at conversations like this to try to change mindset? So we're asking about values. What's important to you, right? We we have a values exercise that I do with my clients, and we use this values deck. So we go through the deck and kind of let them tell me what they value. And so you know, they'll have family in there, they'll have legacy, they'll have words like just just things like that'll be in their values, right? We get it Wait, a little and, down. And, and what is a values deck? Like this is literally like a deck of cards like a deck of yeah it's like a deck it's like a deck of cards actually it is the i think it's the think to perform now you have me looking at what the name of it is i just used it i've used it for so long that i don't even remember the name of the the card deck but basically it's like a deck of cards that has like 50 cards in it and you can do it electronically because we're not we're not meeting clients physically right now because of covid but you send that to them and then it has 52 first you select i, I believe it's 15 things that, you know, there'll be words in there and you select 15 of them. After you select those 15, then we whittle it down to 10, then we whittle it down to five. And those five things will be the things that the person values. And so what I do after we find out what they consider things valuable to them, like uh, one, like education, maybe spirituality, maybe health, happiness, and family, that would be something that someone would say. And so as we're going through those things, um, why is education important to you? And I let them answer that question. You know, maybe it's, I think that education is going to provide stability for my family. Okay. So why is spirituality important to you to be in tune with, you know, a higher power? Why is health so important for you? Well, this person said that, you know, after I had cancer, it really, it really made me understand how important it is for me to take care of myself. Happiness, you know, and, and the happiness goal was actually tied to family. And then we put family for the last one. It was because of the family had given her a purpose, she felt like. And so when we talk about all those things, like we have these five different areas and then we say, okay, so now that we're looking at this, do you really think, you know, how, how are your finances aligning with these things that you're saying that you value? You know, and so now we get to the purchases that they're making, right? Because I say, if you if you someone shows you their calendar and their bank account, you'll know what's important to them. And so now we're looking at these things that they've they've said that they value, and we can have that conversation about, okay, so how are you spending this money? And now we're talking about very very specific things. Okay, so how is this going to help? Per, how is this going to help family? How is this going to add value to this? And when we start looking at that, I can I can't say not to purchase. This in particular, you know, don't get those rims because that's not what you value. They'll say that because now they see what they value. And I say, well, how does this align? Does this purchase make sense compared to, you know, compared with what you want to actually accomplish? And then it's like, no, it doesn't. And I really didn't think about that. So then we get into that. Why is that important? Why do you feel that's important? And so that is kind of the 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 outline of what happens in our meeting because we're getting to the why. I'm asking why three and four times. Like, okay, so why do you think that's important? What tell me more about that? Why do you think it is? And what it ultimately boils down to is when we're hearing these conversations that we're having with people, they are, you know, telling us about their first memory of money is one of the things I ask. I ask some of the kinder questions. I got a kind of a it goes all over the place with how the conversation goes, but I can, I can 
asked some of the kinder questions that I use in asking their first memory of money. And when I'm talking to someone and they share with me their first memory of money is not having any or being poor or, you know, I've had people talk about collecting cans. I've had people talk about, you know, the ice cream man when they came by and and every memory of money they had was not having a lot. And the little bit that they had was to buy something that gratified them instantly. And we go through all of this to get to that. Okay, so this is why you really want to buy that new car that you probably can't afford because it's going to give you the instant gratification in the same way that that ice cream did. The same way that, you know, when you want to go collect those cans that you could go get, you know, some toy with the with the work. So instantly you, you're not thinking long term, you're thinking I need something now. And that had never been addressed and no one had ever talked to them, even though they had insurance, even though they had a 401k, even though they had an IRA or they had whatever financial product they had, they hadn't really gotten down to the root issue. And that was that instant gratification because of the experiences that they had as a child and their relationship with money was shaped from those things. And uh, and so I guess this as well as part of what you meant and what you were talking about in, in saying that like so much of this starts with like not just values, but uh, addressing scarcity mindsets and some of the challenges that come with that. If money's only been scarce and that's the mindset I come from, it's very hard not to approach everything that way. And that's part of what gets us stuck into some of these patterns. Exactly. Exactly. And, And I think like just talking through that with someone, taking a little time in the front to just have them you know, map out what they, what they think is important. And and this is, we haven't even talked about money yet. Like there, you know, I haven't, I've at this point, I haven't looked at anything like, you know, I've, I don't, I don't have any statements. I don't know, you know, how much money they have. I might know how much money they make from my pre-profile questionnaire, but I don't know much about them. And, and one of the questions I ask in my pre-profile questionnaire is, is how do you feel about your money situation? You know, and it's a scale of one to five, you know, five, I'm feeling outstanding. I don't need anything. One feeling like, you know, I don't really know what's going on. And you'd be surprised at how many people don't, don't really just don't know, you know, and that question tells me so much about how the person feels about their overall financial health. So, so now bring this back for us to like the, the business model of giving advice on what you're doing. You had mentioned that you're doing this blend of subscription-based financial planning and an investment model for those who want investments. So I guess first and foremost, kind of making the point, like client, you know, if clients have assets, yes, you do an investment management AUM thing, but if they don't have assets, that's not required to work with you because you've got a subscription-based financial planning model in the first place. Yes, exactly. I'm presuming like that that was a deliberate separation for that reason. Like I want to be able to work with clients who don't necessarily have significant investment portfolios. So I'm going to have a a subscription model that lets me serve them. Yes. So basically what was happening, and and this happened when I was working at the insurance company and you're hitting on it, right? So I, I was, when I would meet with someone, you know, I kind of figured out pretty quickly how, how the, how everything was working there at the firm I was at. But the the thing that I kept running into was after I have the, you know, after we get to the product portion of what I was doing for the client, they still had questions. Well, how does my 401k, you know, how much money should I be putting into my 401k? Well, we went over that. Well, what investments should I have inside of my 401k? Okay, so let's talk through those. What about my health insurance? Okay, let's talk about that. What about my life, my, my, the life insurance policy that I had from, you know, 
an old life insurance policy or an old IRA or what about my, you know, my my homeowner's insurance? Should I have, you know, so we I continued to get these questions after we would have, you know, and I'm doing this with air quotes, the financial plan that I was given from the insurance company that didn't address any of these things. And so I started to ask some of my clients, I said, would you, you know, they, they like the idea of being able to have financial advice that was ongoing and in on time financial advice, if you will, like, I'm going to go buy this car. What do you think about this? Well, was it in the plan that we put together? No, this was something that just happened. And we talked through that. So I wanted to have that ability to be able to talk to clients about their finances and make myself available to them in the concept. I mean, in, in, within the planning for them. I hope that answers the question. Yeah, yeah, it it, it does help. So so what does this pricing model look like in in practice? Like is this is this monthly? Is this quarterly? Is this like fifty dollars a month? Is this five hundred dollars a month? What is what does the model become in practice for you? Yes. So we are actually in the middle of doing the new website. So the new website will have a little better flow to it. So, but what we have now is we have three levels of service. We have a bronze level of service, which is $300 a month. You're just going to get a financial plan with that. And I say just a financial plan, but you, you know, 12 month of engagement, $300 a month. So we're looking at $3,600 there. The next level of services are gold or uh, I'm sorry, silver level of service. And that's going to be $400 a month. That's going to come with the financial plan, tax planning, and tax preparation. So we will do that portion of it. Then we have the last level of service, which is the gold level of service that comes with an estate plan, a financial plan, and the tax planning and tax prep. And that's at $500. So it goes $300, $400, $500 monthly for those packages that we're offering. Interesting. So so you've kind of tiered up, I guess, the the depth or, or like how comprehensive is the plan? Bronze gets me a, a a baseline plan, which I guess is for focus around cash flow, spending, budgeting, assets and liabilities, and where they are. The next tier adds in tax planning and tax prep. The next tier, the top tier, adds in insurance and estate as well. Yep, exactly. And just curious, like, are you? I get on sort of it, things like estate planning. We can advise clients on estate planning, but then we're referring out to an to an attorney for drafting and implementation. When you do this from a tax planning end, and you said you also include tax prep, like are you tax prep guy and that's something you do? Is that something you're hiring? Is that like a CPA you're partnering with? Like how are you actually bundling that together? We I, I actually partnered with a CPA. So we have a I have a CPA partner that I work with. So so we she does all the the tax prep for us. So in essence, like it's it's part of your bundled fee, but you basically sub it out to another CPA to actually do the return on behalf of your firm and on behalf of your firm's client. Yes, that that's how we do it. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm just curious, just because so many advisors do these tax arrangements in different ways. Like, is it does the client only interact with your firm and then you work with the outside CPA to prepare it, or is this still like? You introduce it to them because they have to hire the CPA firm to literally do the tax prep, not yours. But it's like a, you know, a, a triangle relationship. Like how how does this come together? Because I I know for a lot of advisors that are thinking about tax tax advice or tax prep, it's like yes, I would like to help my clients with this. No, I don't want the liability of doing tax stuff if I'm not actually 
uh, a CPA or an enrolled agent. So I'm just I'm I'm always fascinated with how this comes together for advisors. Yeah, it is. It is. It is a interesting how we worked it out. But what we did was basically when someone comes in and they're on that silver level package, then I introduce them to our uh, CPA partner. We do that via email. Now they don't get any charges from the CPA. the The CPA doesn't bill them. They only bill me. And now they have a data collection process that they put the client through. So they work with the client. And I work with, we all work together. So if there's information that they need to get from the client that, that I have, then I will provide that for them. And usually that's, that's pretty, you know, some of the, some of the stuff they might need to get. And then there's an onboarding process that our CPA partner has where they get a lot of that information that they need from the client. Now in our gather app gathering process, we get a lot of that data too. So that's where it's kind of, we're trying to get that fine tuned. So the client's not giving me the same information that they're asking for. So that's what we're working through right now because, you know, the the 15th is coming up pretty soon. So people are trying to make sure that all this stuff is taken care of. Absolutely. But that's interesting. So in essence, like the CPA gets introduced, the client will interact with the CPA to get the tax work done. You're you're all working together on information sharing, communicating. And then at the end of the day, when the tax work is done, the CPA bills you. Yep. That's how it goes. Interesting structure for it. And, and is, like, is this a new thing for you that you're going to roll out for clients? We just started doing this. This just started happening. Actually, this year is the first year that they did it. What led you to it? People kept asking questions about taxes. And I was like, okay, you know, I had, I had, I want to say I had like 10 people reach out to me and say, Hey, Emlyn, do you do taxes? Hey, Emlyn, do you? I was like, no, I don't do taxes. No, I don't do taxes. And then I was like, you know, why, why don't we look into that? So I, I had already worked with the CPA previously and she was on my podcast and had a great, you know, we, we had chatted about some ideas that I had and, and uh, her name is Shanae Wilson. And we had, we had been discussing how this would work, what it would look like sometime last year. And so just because of the, the, the need or the questions from my clients that led, you know, right into, okay, I said, well, what do you think about this? And she's like, yeah, this is something that I want to do. And so I know she's partnered with a couple of other advisors too. So it's, it's not just me that she's, she's doing this with now. So it's been, it's been really, really well received, but I do not do taxes for people that are not my clients. I, that's not something that we do at our firm. You have to be a financial planning client. You have to be at least in the silver package and then we'll do your taxes. So that kind of helped out. So we don't have, you know, a ton of people trying to have us do taxes because that was another thing I didn't want to have happen. Okay. So you'd like, you don't want to be in the tax, tax prep business. You want to be in the service of saying for clients of certain tier, we will also do your tax preparation as part of our holistic offering. Exactly. That that's what we wanted more so than anything else. And because I think what happens in with this in in the minority community, and, and I think it probably happens in other communities too, but I, I know this because I can speak to it with what happens here. So what'll happen is you know, that we'll get the taxes done and then we'll hear, you know, I'll talk to them and I'll see, you know, who, who'd you have to do your taxes? And they had some tax preparer do it. And I'm not, there's nothing wrong with being a tax preparer. Don't, don't so let me just say that, but there'll be some, you know, I'll look through it because that's a part of our financial planning information that I need to, to be able to put the plan together. So they'll send me their taxes and I'll look at them and I'm like, well, what, what is this? Or I've heard, I've heard some of the, I'll tell you this, Michael, I've heard some of the weirdest things come from financial planning clients. Like I had, I had one young girl come to me that was a uh, young lady, actually a you know, young girl, one young lady come to me and ask me about 
taxes. And I was like, okay. She's like, I'm paying taxes at the end of the year. And I was like, okay, so well, why do you think you're paying taxes? Who did your taxes? So we talked through that. And I said, well, how much money are you putting into your, your, your retirement account at work? And she's like, well, I put, you know, she told me the percentage and I was like, well, can you put more away? And she was like, yeah, I could probably, cause she paid, she probably ended up paying a, a small amount of tax, not, not a ton, you know, less than three grand. But I was like, okay, why hadn't you thought about just increasing the amount of money that you put into your retirement account to lower your taxable income and blah, blah, blah. And she was like, well, I didn't even think about that when I went to go see my tax lady. This is what she heard from her tax, the lady that was doing her taxes. She told me that I should just have a kid because I can have more exemptions. I said, what? I almost, yeah, I almost lost my mind when she said that. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, yeah. She said, if I have a, you know, if I had a kid, then, then I would be, you know, okay for it. would I wouldn't have to pay taxes. And I was like, yeah, but then I was like, no, that's not the way this works. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I would strictly speaking through the narrow tax lens, I guess it like it is mathematically true for for tax purposes. But, you know, the whole like going to school and giving them food and clothing and shelter thing might partially offset the tax savings. Just a maybe. little bit, maybe just a little bit. And and so but but I, I'd hear crazy stuff from people like this all the time around taxes. And I'm like, so why who is doing this? And so there's there's a there's a there's just a firm or a tax repair group of people that were giving people wrong information. And I kept hearing this from different people that were working with the same person over and over and over. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I wondered, okay, is it just here? And so then I would talk to other, you know, clients or potential clients and I'd ask them questions about their taxes and I'd hear other craziness that they were getting told from people that were tax preparers. And I was like, you probably need to work with a professional. And they're like, well, what do you mean? I was like, well, have you ever heard of a CPA? And it's like, that's where we're at in the minority community with some people that don't even realize that there's designations to tell, to talk about being, you know, someone that can prepare your taxes and having a professional do it. And and, and so, yeah, it, 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 like if I if I went through that, you'd be blown away at some of the things that people don't know. I, I I'm I'm sure for a lot of folks listening, we we got a good sense of it of try try having babies to lower your tax your tax bill. So for you, like this is this is value add bundling. This is I'm just actually going to get clients to a good a good tax outcome and hopefully some more solid advice. I am wondering from the like from the flip side of it though, when you have clients that come in that are just like I'll put that in the air quotes, like just at the at the bronze tier, and so they're they're not buying up to tax planning, to insurance planning, to estate planning. I know for. A lot of advisors, we we kind of like pride ourselves on the comprehensiveness of advice and financial planning means integrating all these different elements together to give you a holistic picture. Do you stress or worry about like what happens if I'm working with a client at the bronze tier and I'm not covering insurance and estate stuff and it turns out that's their gap and they're uninsured or underinsured and there's an accident or someone dies and and someone's saying like, you know, I was working with Emlyn for my financial plan. We never talked about this insurance stuff. So it, it is encompassed in the in the in talking about the plan. So the difference is that I, I guess in the, the the bronze level, you're getting information about what you need to do. So we're going to go through your insurance and tell you how much insurance you need to do, and, and and tell you exactly how you can get it. So we will advise on that. Now. What you're getting at the different levels is you're paying for implementation. I'm going to give you information on your taxes. You need this is what you you know this is what you should do based on what's going on. But the implementation is where the price difference comes in. 
So the so the anchor on on silver isn't necessarily the tax planning per se; it's the tax preparation. Mm-hmm. So so when you get to the gold tier, if you're focused around implementation, like does this mean you're a blended firm that's doing advisory fees and then also selling and implementing the insurance, or that? No, like, I'm not doing insurance. Yeah, yeah, no insurance is being so. So what we'll do is usually we're using you know I'll say this is the amount of insurance you need. You can do it, and you can. Find that insurance. We usually will we'll use uh, Lissy, or we'll use a few other insurance places that will, you know. And I have some friends that are in the insurance industry, so it just depends on what the level of the client is at. Like some people are do-it-yourselfers. It's like here goes this link. All you got to do this is what you need. This type of insurance. Go ahead, knock it, knock it out. Some people are like that. Some people need a little more handholding, so I can say, hey, you know what? These are three insurance guys that I know will take care of you. I've already told them what you need. You let me know what you think and we go from there. And then what about on the estate end? Like do you have a bring in an attorney and the attorney bills you in this in the way that you do on the tax preparation side or or how are you handling the estate side of implementation? Good question. So the way we're doing that is we work with Helios Plans. So Helios Plans is a company that has estate planning, estate planners and they put together uh, it's like a it's it's like a software that we use and then they review those plans and then they're the ones that execute the documents and all that stuff. So I, me and the client work together. I'm, I'm the one that asks all the questions. I'm the one that goes through it. And then we send it over to the estate planner and they review it. And then we send it out to the client, get it notarized and taken care of that way. So Helios is like a online lawyers, legal Zoom type of thing, but, but works with advisors and your clients as opposed to direct to consumer legal Zoom. Something like that. Yeah, it works like pretty much like that. So Helios Quantitative Research is, is uh, they do a whole bunch of stuff. And one of the things that they do is that estate planning piece. So yes, they take care of it. They have their team review it. They have their attorneys check it out. And then that's how we're able to get around sending them to an actual attorney because uh, this is why we changed it to this way. Because what was happening is I had an attorney partner that I have, which great guy, nothing wrong with him. It's just, you know how it is when you're putting together a plan for a client and you say, this is what you need to do. And then sometimes they don't follow through. So this was a way for me to stay in contact and stay with the client throughout the process and make sure that they actually done. Once again, going back to the the charges for the implementation. So so talk to us a little bit more now about pricing. $300 a month, $400, $500 a month. Like, like I guess as with almost anything we spend, whether this seems, you know, cheap or expensive sort of is relative to your income and what what else you spend money on and and at what levels. But like how do, how did you come to numbers like 300 a month, 500 a month? Like that's, you know, $3600, $6000 a year. I mean, I think most would say like this is this is not inexpensive. Not not to say that it should be, but just like that's a that's a good sized amount of revenue for each client to be on board with with financial planning. So how how did you come to to numbers like this? How did you set your pricing? Yeah. So what we did was this is the third vision uh, reversion of of the pricing. So we started out, you know, uh, like and and it's funny because I heard you say it on your podcast. I heard it on the XY podcast. We started out charging way too not enough. So we started out doing like hundred dollars a month. I'm doing, you know, tons of work. And I'm like, dude, this is, this, <laughs> I'm doing a lot of work for not a lot of money. And so then we went from a hundred and then I changed the pricing to family, individuals, couples, 
and business owners. And that pricing was, I think it was like, I want to say we'd went up to like 250 for single people and 350 for individuals. And then I started seeing that not everybody was falling into those two categories and, and, and it just, just didn't, it wasn't working the way I thought it would work. And then when I changed it this to this uh, rendition of the fees, this has been the best received by clients. It's funny because I'm, I'm charging more than I charged before, but this one is the one that I've had the most clients like kind of like. And I think I, I attribute that to one, being in business longer, two, feeling more confident when I'm able to explain what we're doing and giving a true comprehensive outlook of what we're doing for the clients. And so the price point, when I got, when I went and looked at it, basically what I did is I looked at all of my my clients and I said, okay, so if I'm looking at my AUM, because I, I, there's a portion of the AUM, and I looked at what the revenue was per client, and then I thought, okay, so these are my top 10 clients. This is the bottom amount of revenue I'm making from these, these our top 20 clients. This is the bottom amount of revenue I'm making on the AUM side. If I'm going to take time away from AUM, which isn't a ton of time, but if I'm going to take time away from that, I need to be making at least this much money to substantiate taking the time away from the other things that I'm doing. And that's how I got to the fee at the lowest level. So it was kind of a backing in for you of... Like, here's what I do. Here's the time it takes. Here's the amount of revenue I need to generate. So if this is a planning only, not an investment-based client, like this is the number I need to get to as a minimum revenue for each client to, to justify and validate the amount of work being done. That's exactly what I did. And and I think it speaks to, you know, like this is year three, right? And And, and I've seen on the charts, you know, graphs that you can see what happens with an advisor in their third year of running their advisory firm. And I think that was that kind of, I, mean, I can look at two years of data, see what the fees are and then say, okay, yeah, you know what, this is better. And then it's, it, it, it worked much better. So I, I think it's important for advisors to understand how their revenue works per client and how that can affect things in the, in the firm going forward. You know, it's a striking thing for me. I mean, we've seen this with XY Planning Network in particular, since so many advisors start their firms there, not necessarily that they're new advisors to the industry necessarily, although although some are, but just they're they're starting firms from scratch that you know we we have seen for many years now on our internal studies that uh, literally like one hundred point zero percent of advisors raise their fees in their first three years, like just literally everybody underprices out of the gate. I think you know for some it's I'm still getting used to just charging, charging what I'm worth, actually being able to say with a straight face to another human being like you have to pay me $500 every month for that and like not choking it up, which just you you tend to do when you're getting started and you really want to get your first few clients and just getting a handle on how much time does it actually take me to do all the stuff that I'm saying I do because the truth in the first year or two is you know, you can end up undercharging. Your business will be fine because it's not like you have a million clients to work with. Like there, there aren't that many people yet on board. We're just trying to get any revenue in the door. At some point after a few years, it's like, no, I know what I do. I know what I'm worth. I've actually got a couple of clients now, so I can't just be be free and open with my time. I got to make sure I'm really getting compensated with my time. And then we see just so many rework their fee schedule usually ends up being a higher number when when all is said and done. And we kind of find that balancing point that really works for us. Yeah. And, and I think it's important to do, you know, it's it's really important to 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 understand like those price points, right? 
knowing what's going to work. Now, I think the biggest thing for me was when we actually did make the change and then being in three years, like you were, you know, being in, in, in running the RIA for three years, but there was this professional confidence that had come from having clients and talking to them about the stuff. Like, I know what I'm, I know I'm good at this. Like, I know that, that if someone had, if someone becomes a client, I'm going to help them and I'm going to help them in a tremendous amount. And not as a not not coming across as arrogant, but just having some professional confidence that, yes, I'm very good at this and I'm going to help you. And then what that's done, I was actually on on a call with with someone the other day and she was doing a webinar and I was speaking to some of her clients. She was a financial coach. And, you know, I talked through what my process was, how I work with people, you know. And, and I know she can see the confidence. And then after we get off the call, she sends me an email and she's like, I think you got a new client. And I'm like, oh, wow, cool. One of the people, you know, that was listening. And I was like, well, who was it? She's like, I want to be your client. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow. Okay. So it's like, all right, well, let, let's do it, you know? And I think that just comes from, th- there's no replacement for time in business there. And I'll say it again. There is no replacement for being in business for a certain amount of time, because what happens with that. Um, you do get the confidence. You do. You have your ups and downs, but you you typically begin to build the network and you get get those friendships that that you know. Uh, when we're doing the single, you know, the the one person RIA, sometimes you don't know what's going on out there, and to be able to have you know a community of advisors that you can reach out to and share stories with and successes and understand that it does get better with time if you do things right. You know, it's one of the things that's always struck me in our the the research that we see when we look at at advisor compensation that the single greatest predictor of an advisor's compensation is the number of years they have been in a client facing role like more so than anything like more so than degrees designations business model all the other stuff uh that that stuff matters like it 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 has material factors as well but adding additional years of experience and just what advisors typically earn after three years, five years, seven years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years and up, number of years is overwhelmingly the single greatest determinant and with basically no ceiling. Like you just keep going out to 30 plus years. Advisors who've been doing it for 35 years on average earn more than the ones who've been doing it for only 30. Like it's a disturbingly straight line linear relationship. And and as you said, I think so much of it really comes down to not just kind of growing and developing our expertise, right? We do, I think, get better at this as we do it more and longer for more people. But the confidence we get that, you know, not only am I worth more, but I know I'm worth more and I can actually say it straight to people. Like, I know I'm really going to be able to help you significantly for the fees that I I charge. Yes, they're not inexpensive, but let me show you the value. And you build that network of people that you can work with and do business with and friends and colleagues and centers of influence, all the other connections that you develop. And just there's this amazing compounding effect that comes with time, which I know certainly when I was young and getting started myself, right? The the whole like, at least my mentality, I think for a lot of people was sort of a screw this whole pay your dues thing. Like I should be able to just get in there and do it. And to me, it's it's not really about paying your dues, but just literally like this is a hard business and it takes a lot of years to build confidence and build your network. But the more years you do it, the 
better it gets and it just keeps going. Yeah. And I think that like one of the things that that can get lost in this, because we're speaking generally, right? And I think this is pretty much, you know, across the board with 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 uh, with financial advisors. But when we go into, you know, when we talk about the the black advisor coming in, can the black advisor make it through those three years, those four years, those first five years and become successful enough that the practice is going to continue? And I think that is the part that, you know, how do you go into a firm? where they tell you you have to work with, you know, people that have money. That's typically not people that have color. And then we have to, you know, sell a certain amount. You, there's just it's just so hard to deal with, you know, to try to get through that. And then in addition to that, and we're not even, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to just railroad the conversation, but I mean to deal with some of the some of the the racism that you have to deal with in the industry and maybe even at the firm you work at to couple that with that in addition to trying to make it in this business on its own. So I always say that if, if a person of color or, or, you know, I'm saying men and women, if a person of color or anybody that's made it in this industry has to have a certain amount of resilience to make it, to make it in this industry as a person of color, you have to have more than the average person that's coming in. Because if you don't, you just it's it's just this as we know this industry is a, is a tough one and and if if we don't have the resources and I, and I'm, as I'm saying this I'm thinking like what things can we do to help advisors of color to make it through these first three years that are terribly difficult to navigate you know when there's not enough money coming in and you don't have the professional uh, the professional confidence and you don't have the network and you don't have you know people to support you. Uh, I was talking to, uh, I was having lunch with the district attorney here in, in Madera the other day. And she was like, my brother's, you know, she's telling me about some business things. And she was like, you know, if, if anyone in my family ever needed to get, you know, I have all of us have businesses of our own. And if anyone in my family ever needed money to get through a tough time in their business with this COVID thing, you know, if my, if my brother asked me, she's like, my sisters and I could pull up, you know, could, could round up a hundred thousand dollars to help him give that to give that to him for his business so he could continue to go. I don't know too many, you know, advisors of color that just have family members that are around that can help that can give that influx of cash. So, you know, I think that understanding how difficult it is to get into the industry and then how long it takes to actually be successful in the industry may be one of the reasons why we're not seeing more advisors of color coming into this industry. Yeah, well, when it again, when it's all built around, you know, so here's how it works. You come into the industry, you bring a list of your friends and family who have money. And then the first three years, you make almost no money while your friends and family also probably support you financially while you go and sell them stuff in order to get your business going. And like, that's basically the model and has been for for 40 odd years. You know, like that's how you end out with a world where the diversity of advisors ends up looking like the diversity of wealth because we've like we've literally built and institutionalized a model that is designed to make advisors look like the the distribution of wealth. I mean, I don't think we did it intentionally by any means, but just as long as that's the primary career track and, and pathway into the industry, I, I think that's why we've seen what I think are a lot of well-intentioned efforts for probably 20 years that I, I feel like advisor diversity has become a growing conversation in the industry. And and the needle basically hasn't moved a percentage point in in 20 years because we keep saying like we need to recruit more and we need to get out there more to 
attract more advisors of color, but then we don't change any of the career track pathways that are still built around you need to have friends and family who have enough money to do business with you in your natural market list and also enough family wealth so that you can survive making very little money in the early years until you get to the point where your business is economically viable. And and as we either change business models or change career tracks, to me, that's where some of the shift starts happening as well, right? When we can hire people into your paraplanner and associate planner roles and give them salary for the first three years while they do their job and learn their confidence and then send them out for business development later, then you you change that cycle. And, and I think to some extent, just changing the business model to be not so reliant on assets under management, like, you know, it's a fine model to serve people who have assets to manage, like the math works fine, but it it doesn't fit well for communities of color that don't have the same level of wealth in the first place. You know, we've We've certainly seen that with the XY Pline Network. Like we have a model that's built around subscription models and not necessarily managing assets. And lo and behold, you know, XYPN is over 15% non-white. And I think the number of African American CFP professionals is under 4%. So, you know, you get you get business models that are more accommodative of a wider range of clientele, you end out with a more diverse base of advisors as well. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right there. And and as you said, we've been talking about it, but like if there's a kid out there that, you know, or, or just a person that wants to get into the industry, what is the pathway that we have? Like I've had my wife's cousin called me and she said, I want to be a financial advisor. And and it was it was so tough because I was I, I was listening, you know, and this is a family member, and I'm sitting here thinking, like, what do we tell her to do? Because, you know, for so long, it's like, okay, well, go work, you know, at a, you know, go find a BD or or an insurance shop that's going to hire you and then, you know, grind it out for three years. Hopefully you make it. And then after you make it, you know, maybe we can start working with you somewhere else. And I think like people, firms developing a pathway to the CFP would be a great thing to have. Like you have someone come in. This is our, this is our, you know, we're going to do diversity. We're going to do, you know, some, some hiring of some people of color and we're going to have you come in and we're going to teach you how to be a paraplanner first. Okay. And we're going to give you a salary for that. While you're being a paraplanner, you're going to go through your training. You're going to do this. And then after you go there, we're going to move you up to this next level. And then eventually you can become a lead planner. And I know there's some firms that are doing that, but I'm saying for us as an industry to make sure that we're getting the, the right type of talent and the, the people and then teaching them the things we need to, they need to know, we're going to have to go to the colleges. You know, maybe we're going to HS, uh, HBCU colleges. Maybe we're going to, you know, other places and making sure that they, they have the resources to get in. And I, and I have a, I have a fascinating story about how I got into the industry, tell you the honest truth. I mean, um, cause I was rejected a few times. And and if that's something that you want to touch on, I can definitely talk through that a quick story. Yeah, like how who who rejected you trying to trying to get in? Like what was that journey? Yeah, so so I go to I believe it was I mean I'm a large firm here, you know, large large reputable wirehouse, and so I was twenty. I want to say I was like 23. So I was, I, I, I was, I played anyhow. I was, I hadn't graduated school. I hadn't finished school yet. I had some, some stuff that came up and I, it delayed my graduation, but I didn't have my degree yet. And so I remember I went into this firm and I interviewed and they're like, well, you know, we knew you didn't have your degree, but 
you know, we, we wanted to have you come in and just tell you this, you know, we, 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 we'd love to have you here, but because of the minimum requirements, we can't have you come in and work for us. So I didn't get to go there. Then I went to another what, firm. Wait, I'm just wondering, like, we'd love to have you here, but because of the minimum requirements, like that's specifically just the, the degree, the degree because you don't have your degree, okay. we can't have you come in. And I was like, okay. Um, all right, well, you know, I'll figure it out. And, and, and at that time we were just having, uh, I was just having my first daughter. So I, I just, you know, this is, this is more important to me. I need to make sure that I get some financial stability. So I stopped going to school and started working. So I didn't get in there. And then I went to another place. They interviewed me. It was a, a bank channel firm. And they're like, well, we can't, you know, you don't have the experience to get into the industry. We can't, you know, we can't, we like you, but you know you have great personality, this and that. But we, we can't have you. You know we 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 can't extend you an offer. And I was like, okay, so that happened twice. And then I finally, you know, get offered. So just to be clear, like you're trying to get essentially an like an entry level job, which you're not qualified for due to lack of experience. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's what that's what they're that's what they're you know alleged. That's that's what the the reason was. And I was like, okay. All right. Well, I guess I'll, 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 I mean, I don't know how I can get experience in this. If you guys don't hire me, there's no way for me to get experience. And so that was the, but I was, but I was, I was persistent. So then the opportunity came up at Edward Jones and I got in at Edward Jones and really didn't just, you know, no, nothing bad with the company. I just didn't really like the model that they had. It just really didn't jive with me. And I said, you know what, I, I'd, I'd rather go somewhere else. You know, we were, I was in the middle of So when of you going, started with Edward Jones, was this like, client client facing or at least prospecting like traditional advisor role like go 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 out and knock on doors and find folks to work with exactly so i left the bank and the only reason i got in edward jones let's be honest is because one of the guys that the guy that had the office here in town i knew and he said hey you know what i'm getting ready to retire once you come in they'll you know they'll do all the training all that stuff and you'll just come right into the office this will be my last year we'll work together for this last little bit of time and then i'll leave it's like all right sounds good well that was in the middle of me going through a divorce <laughs> and this is the this is the, the one time i get a chance it couldn't have been the worst timing ever so i'm going through a, a divorce at the time and i remember taking the test for i took my series 7 passed that one no problem took my series 66 and this i might i had already had some licenses cuz i went to the oh i forgot to tell you that so when i worked at the bank i actually started to get my i got my series 6 my series 63 and i got my life and health and i had my series 26 cuz i had to manage the the advisors that were in there so the bank gave me a chance to get in so I had the licenses in, in after after those initial two. Then I went to Edward Jones. So then when I went to Edward Jones, I started as an advisor. This is when so I left the bank as a manager. I was the bank manager. Left Edward Jones. Went to go be a went to go be a, uh, a an advisor. Starting trying to start a practice here, and I was eventually supposed to take over the practice of the other advisor that was here in town. Get to the part where I have to take my Series sixty six. We I'm going through a divorce at the time. So we divorce on a Tuesday and my test is on a Thursday. And of course, nothing's going to affect me, right? Nothing's going to affect me. I've already passed all these other exams and, you know, I know that there's no emotional stress or anything going on. So I failed my exam. <laughs> I failed it by two points, by one question. And I, and I was like, you got to be kidding me. Yeah, I failed it by one. I shouldn't have taken the exam anyways, but I failed it. And then so they... You know, they they allowed me to uh, search for other opportunities. They wouldn't even give you a second shot. Like, hey, I did get divorced forty eight hours ago. Like, can I can I go back and have one more try? 
Yeah, the, so they they it, it it was it was just a it was a it was a bad deal. So yeah, I had that. Then after that, I went to principal. When I went to principal, this is the first time that I feel like okay. So I wasn't having to knock on doors. I was going to use my natural market list, and I went to go talk to a few people there at the office. And one of the ladies there had built their business from absolute scratch, and I asked her, and she told me about how to get referrals. Getting referrals is the only way that you're going to make it in this business, and. I set a record at, at principal for the most applications that they had ever had taken in the first 12 months of some as a new agent. I said all that to say this, that it took two firms <laughs> telling me no, finally a firm telling me yes, then me failing another exam to get to another place, and then finally finding a place. This is all the just the pre-stuff just to get in. But once I got in, I set a record for the most applications taken at the firm, especially it's like they had an award. It was called a uh, pace setter and they give you 12 months to do that. And I told the the managing partner at the, at the, at my firm at principal, I said, what if I do it in, in six months? What will you do if I do it then? He's like, you do this in six months and I'll give you an office. So we were in a cubicles everywhere. And I said, I'll do this in six months. I did it like in five and like less than I did it in less than six months. And he was like, oh, wow. Well, I said, I'll give you an office. So they put me in the office and I just continued tearing through applications, meeting new people, getting practice. And 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 I'm saying all that to say this, that had I given up back then and not continued to persevere and try to, you know, even after I failed the exam, going back, studying again, passing my exam and then getting, you know, getting in the principal and then starting and this hitting the ground running and then seeing that I think there's a better way to do things, starting my own firm. None of that ever happens. This 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 initial thing started in like 2003 when I tried to get into the industry. And here we are 17 years later and I have my own firm and we're actually, you know, trying to change the complexion of wealth, but none of that happens. This is a pattern that I see play out for a lot of advisors in, in the industry and, and through their careers that and sort of ironic to me, for people that are coming into the industry, I see a huge, huge focus on like, I have to find the firm, like the right firm, the one right firm that I that I land at that's going to be my like long-term career building one. And and I'm not going to go to any other firm that doesn't doesn't fit my ideal list of criteria. And and the truth I find in practice is we almost never get this right in our in our first job out. Like it may not be the right firm. It may not turn out to be the right firm. The firm changes. We change. We thought we wanted to do something, but then it turns out we want to do something else. Maybe it's just literally a stepping stone job that I find for almost everyone that goes through, like we do, we start somewhere. We do that for a while. We start learning the things we like and we're good at and not the things and, and the things that we don't like. We get a little bit of professional confidence. We make some change. We go to a second firm that's different than the first because the first wouldn't give us the opportunity that we want. So like the, the second job is always like the polar opposite of the first, right? For you, you went from you know a stable bank environment to like, here's a cube and a phone. <laughs> go go get some go get some folks. We do the second job for a period of time. We we hopefully get good at that, but we start to really figure out what we like and what what we don't like because we now had two jobs that are pretty much polar opposites. And then the third job is usually the one that sticks for a really long time. And, and the number of people that I've seen going through the industry that go through this same pattern, like we start somewhere, we make a jump to the opposite, and then we figure out what we really want to do and build with our long-term careers that just, I, I've taken actually telling people that are coming in the industry, like 
stop freaking out so much about whether your first firm and job is going to be good. I, I think as you've noted here, like make sure it's a job that will pay you enough to survive because if you get knocked out of the game, you don't get to the later years where the good stuff happens. But you know, just find a job. You'll go from there to a second job because we all evolve over time. The third one is the one that actually matters. Yeah. And and I think it's it's just to think about you know, um, the journey to try to get in is, is, is crazy. Like just, just to get into the industry. And so I thought like, you know, I, I always say all I needed was an opportunity for, for someone like me, I, I would have been successful at the first firm that I went to. It's fine. Cause I, because I, I showed that track record when I went to the bank, I forgot. I didn't even mention that when I went to the bank, I mean, I was promoted to a manager within 18 months. That was me getting into the industry. I got my, you know, the, the series six sixty three and life and health and tore through that, wrote more, you know, um, life insurance applications and financial plans at the time. That's what they call it. I did more financial plans than any other of the uh, new new accounts representatives in our area and led the area in, in sales for, you know, within 18 months. And these people that had been doing this for a long time. And I kept going back and saying, all I need was a chance. Did the same thing when I went to principal. Didn't get that far at Edward Jones, but it would have been the same thing there too, because I don't think... Uh, the work ethic has always been there. And I, I just, it just disappoints me sometimes to know that we as an industry are missing out on good talent because of some of the initial, some of the, the job requirements. And I, and I think how many people are out there were like me that didn't meet the, you know, and, and, and I was hired with a group of people when I started at both firms at, at principal and at, at city, you know, they had some other clients that would other people that I worked with that, you know, I'm doing that were more qualified than me on paper, but none of them outperformed me. And so I just, you know, I just, if, if there's a firm that's listening and, and you're saying, you know, I don't know what I, you know, what I can do. And I'm not saying that you just need to lower the education requirement to let people in. But if someone didn't take a chance on me, we wouldn't be having this conversation now. I am curious then just what, what was the driver for you? Like why, why financial advisor and the, like the persevering all the different ways of getting rejected to try to find that job that finally got you in and 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 got you going. Like, why why financial advisor? Is this just something you wanted to do since you were a little kid? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I, I think it started as in the beginning. It was just you know I remember working at the bank. I started as a teller at the bank a long time. You know, back in like like a long time before I got into the the, the new account stuff. And there was a financial advisor in the bank when I, when I worked there and he would come in, he'd always come in late. <laughs> this is how it started though. He'd always come in late. He'd always leave early. He drove the nicest car, wore the nicest suit, made the most money. I said, man, that's what I want to do. That, that's, that's it. <laughs> he came, he came in late, left early, had the nicest car and the best clothes and made the most money. All right. <laughs> that was it. I said, I, I want to do this. That's what I want to do. And so then I started you know, as I'm getting down and I'm starting to meet with people, now I'm getting into their finances and I'm seeing, oh, wow, this person doesn't know this and this person doesn't know this. And these are people that I would perceive as financially successful. And I was like, well, how do you not know these principles and like this concept? And you don't know what a mutual fund is and you don't understand what a stock is. And you don't. And I'm like, so that's why you have all this money in the bank. That's what you see a lot of at the bank. I see all these large balances. And I'm like, why wouldn't you invest this money? And as I started talking to people, I started to see how much the the money was impacting their family in a good way. And I was like, man, you know, what if we could help people like, you know, get better understanding of their money? And this is my thoughts. Like, man, people need help. People need help. I got to help these people. I got to help everybody. And that's what I started trying to do. 
And so through me just saying, I need to help everyone, I started to see that making myself available to help everyone, more people of color started coming to me because I didn't take the niche. It just started kind of happening that way. So now I'm like, okay, so now I'm, I'm going, it was almost like I'm going out and I'm going out and I'm learning about these different financial, you know, concepts. And now I'm bringing them back to the community that I was, that I had come from. And that's when I started seeing the impact and people would come back and say, Hey, Emlyn, you know, that life insurance really, really helped me that this really, really helped me this, you know, you said something about this and that really made an impact in my life. And I started seeing the impact that I was having. And then the the shift in focus from the money that completely shifted from that. Cause I was like, I'm not, I'm making impacts in people's lives. It's not about the money. Yeah. We'll get paid and we'll figure that out when we get there. But I've really fell in love with, with making an impact in the lives of people that I was talking to. And and that's where the real, I, I was like, I have to make it. I have to be able to be in this industry because there's someone out there that's looks like me, that's depending on me to make it. And I can't fail for someone that I, I can't fail. I just, I just can't, I have to, I have to drive through this. I had to, I got to push through it. And, and that's where it came from. So then as you evolved that into an advisor business model that now starts at $300 a month, how do you think about this? I guess just uh, uh, affordability wise. Like, is this a is this a palatable price point to the community that you that you serve? Does this only hit a certain segment of the of the community? Like, how do you think about that three hundred dollar a month and up price point? I so what I've noticed is as my prices have gone up, I'm helping more. I'm continuing to help people of color. I'm just helping people of color that are earning more money. And so what it's shown me is that, yes, there are people of color out there that earn the dollar amount that this isn't even a, you know, this is a non-issue for them to be able to pay, but they still had some of the the same, you know, they needed the same financial information of the people that were, you know, that, that, that couldn't afford it or that, that, uh, that may have made less money. So I think the podcast is part of the reason why. I feel okay having my price points because the people that can't, you know, people that may not be able to afford it, I think I have enough nuggets of information on the podcast to where they can actually get themselves in a better, you know, financial situation just from going through some of the topics we have. And we're actually, uh, I'm actually getting ready to partner with a financial coach that is going to offer a little less service, a, a lower cost point for people that can get into her program to start working with her and have a pathway to working with a financial advisor. So we're trying to address it that way for the people that can't afford it. But what I've been getting to find is there's more people than I thought that will afford this 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 uh, price point. And I guess the key distinction is just they 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 it's not that they can afford it because they have more per se because then then they can also work with the. AUM model folks as well, like that they, uh, they can afford it because they make more, like just because they, they're paying it from income, but there's folks of above average income in all communities. And so, you know, you end out serving above average income folks with one model and below average income folks with the podcast and a, and a coach partner. Out of curiosity, as you restructured fees, did you raise it for everyone, including the existing clients or... Was this just a new clients, new model, new pricing going forward? It was new clients, new model, new pricing going forward. But I'm coming up on my annual meetings on some of my clients that 
that I've had prior to the price increase. So when I meet with them, we will have that conversation about the new stuff that we're doing. And if they want to move over into those packages, I'm not going to force them out because one, you know, it's not been, you know, it's not been too long since we started that, but yeah, I will be having the meeting. And I know largely in part, the reason why we started offering taxes, because a lot of the people that were already in the planning program were asking for it. So I, I anticipate them just, you know, taking the increased cost and saying, yeah, let's do this and let's keep going with what we're going. And then talk to us a little bit more about just like, what is the full process when you're doing this for, I guess, a base fee of $300 a month that we talked about, like the upper tiers are implementation of tax, uh, implementation of tax and insurance in the state, but this kind of baseline $300 a month, you know, every month, 12 months through, what is the process? What do you do for people upfront and ongoing for $300 a month? Good question. So when we start, the first thing we do is we have our, you know, we have our, our introductory call to see if we're going to work together. That's always the first thing that we have. We have a 30 minute call. We get on. I ask them a few questions. We just see if we're going to jive because I think it's it's more of a person. It's a personality fit as well as the, uh, you know, income fit and, and, and relationship stuff. So that's the first call we have. Then I give them a week to make their decision. I don't want a decision in the first call. I tell them you need to take your time with this. Just think about it. And I literally schedule the next call for the decision at that time. So when we schedule that call, we get the decision. Then we have our onboarding call. So so you so you'll literally like in the first intro call meeting, like we're talking on a Thursday afternoon at two and it's like you you get towards the end of the call having gotten to know them a little and talk a little about what you do and say, hey, I I'd like to schedule a follow-up call for you. Like right now on this call, like we're going to, can we talk again at two o'clock next Thursday and we'll check in and see, are you interested? Do you have any other questions or are you interested in moving forward? Exactly. So typically what we're doing in that first meeting is we, I have about five or six questions. I ask them, it's only 30 minutes and I give them time for questions. I ask them in the beginning of meeting, what do we need to know? Like first question I ask is, at the end of this meeting, how will we know that this was a good meeting at the end? That tells me everything I need to ask them. <laughs> so, so I ask them that, how are we going to know if this meeting was a success? And then, so we go from that and then we get into the pricing, we get into the tiers, we get into this. And I, I'll tell them, I said, based on what you're telling me now, you probably would be best fit for, you know, the bronze package or based on what you're telling me now, you'd be a best fit for this. And what I want you to do is I want you to think about this. I want you to take some time and We'll get back together next week. How does that sound? They're like, oh, you don't need me to make a decision today. I said, no, I don't, I don't, I don't want you to make a decision today. I want you to feel comfortable with this. And I close, I, I mean, we've had, I've had what, five new clients this month. That's the model I use. They just come on after that. I mean, they, they, they take time, they get to listen. Usually I get a, some, sometimes I'll get a, a follow-up email from my summary of our conversation. Like, Hey, what about this? And then I answer the question. I send them three to four podcast episodes in that so they can, you know, get to know me a little bit. And when they come back, we're signing up typically. So from there, I was five for five this month, by the way. So closing ratio is good. Yeehaw. Congratulations. Thank you. So we, from there, we go to onboarding and we call it the client GPS system. And when we onboard them, we use Right Capital as our, as our onboarding system and, or as our financial planning software. So we get them all loaded up. I walk them through what it looks like. I'm sorry, before we do that, we do the onboarding and then that's when we go through all the contracts and all that good stuff. And then our first actual working meeting will be that 
onboarding meeting where we go through, make sure we get all that stuff, all their, you know, accounts linked and, you know, all the stuff that goes on with that. So signatures and contracts and just something like you, you do that in a, in a closing meeting or you do that coming off of the follow-up call, like introductory call. We're going to talk a week later to decide if you want to move forward. If they say, yes, we want to move forward in that follow-up call. And you say like, great, when we hang up the phone, I'm going to start emailing you paperwork to review and you do it digitally. I start, I do it with them on the phone. I do it on the phone while they're on that phone in that call. So if they've made the decision on that call, I'm like, you know, we're going to send you the stuff. And so I have an automated system that has all that stuff uh, that has the workflow ready. If they make the decision to say yes, then I just, you know, typically it's a yes, we're going to do it. Then we send all the contracts. Then we just really be like, well, I'm glad you said that. Please open your email now. And like, I'm hitting a button to start sending the stuff to you. Exactly. So what what do you what do you use to do that? Is that coming out of your CRM system? So I'm using a combination of things. I use Process Street. That's where a lot of my stuff is at. And then to send the forms, I use JotForm. And then from JotForm, that Process Street, JotForm, and Zapier. So Zapier sends all of my notes and everything to the CRM, which I use as Wealthbox. Then Process Street is my workflow that I use. That that's how that all happens. So the process street will send them the job form forms that they need through MailChimp. So it's all, it's all, it's a whole bunch of automation processes that I actually used another XY member to set up stuff for me. It was a uh, Ariel Minacuzzi. She, uh, or well, she's her married name. I can't remember her marriage. She just got married, but she's the one that helped me set up all my processes. So it's, it's super streamlined when they, when they come on. So all those, those forms and stuff that I'm talking about are all packaged up and ready to go for that next call. And when I send it out, it's going to send them the financial planning agreement. It's going to send them the, you know, the investment advisory agreement. It's going to send them the link to advice pay so they can set all that up. So when we get on our fall, our, our actual onboarding call, all of that stuff is done. So that those are, that's typically two 30 minute calls. Honestly, it's, it's the introductory call. And then after that, that second call where we're doing the, you know, the decision call, basically when they make that decision, that call is about 30 minutes. And then we have our onboarding call. Okay. And so then, so then onboarding call, you're getting into what you said is your client GPS system. So talk to us a little bit more about this. Yeah. And that's, that, and that's right capital. So what we do there is we're going to have them, you know, they, they'll have the email that they'll get. So they'll start setting up the folders. They typically set that all up after that meeting. So by the time we get to our actual call, they're usually all, you know, most of their accounts are linked. If they've had any issues with that, then we take care of that on the call. Then I go through some of the goals with them. And then after we get, you know, after we feel, I feel like they're pretty comfortable, I go into the transactions and make sure that they know how that all works. And then our next meeting is cash flow and goals. So the following week, we have a cash flow and goals meeting. We go through what's important to them. And then 30 days from there, we have a planned delivery meeting. And, and, that, and that, forms the, that forms kind of the conclusion of the process. For the, for the, for the plan. And then we, you know, we have scheduled meetings throughout those, those next 12 months to go through the plan. So we'll give, you know, when we're doing cash flow and goals, we're saying, okay, in the next three months, what, what like really, really like actionable things that we can do right now. 
So then we start getting into those things with them specific to their situation about what we need to act on. And so I'll give them some homework to do in those first you know, 30 days. I need this, this and this. Then when we get to the plan delivery, I deliver the plan. I said, you know, based on our conversation, this is the first goal that we're going to tackle here. Let's go ahead and get this done. Sometimes we'll do two, but I never do more than three goals in that first, you know, the first couple things. So almost like a modular type of uh, goal accomplishment if you will, like we accomplish this goal, let's move to the next one, whatever that may be. So, so how do you decide what to dig into? Cause I know for, again, I just think about this for a lot of us advisors, like, Oh, heaven forbid we, you know, we don't get into one of the things first. And then that turns out to be the thing where something bad happens and I'll, I'll, I'll regret or out, I'd be in trouble, but the, that I didn't work on that early on. Like, how do you decide or set or figure out which things you're tackling when? I think it's it's based on what's important to the client. Now there's going to be, you know, they're going to give me some of the, the 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 things that they think are important or that are important to them and then I'll say, "Okay, these are things that I'm thinking about." And we kind of marry those two and say, "Okay, this is what you're thinking, this is what I'm thinking. This is this can pose, you know, someone doesn't have life insurance, right? And we're working together. So this can pose a big problem to you if we don't get this addressed. And so we'll be able to, you know, say, "Okay, we're going to take care of this right now. This is going to go on now and then we're going to put these goals back a little bit because this is very, very important. It's still going to leave you, you know, I mean, I don't think there's a perfect way to do it. I think that, you know, when we're dealing with people, anything can happen, but at least we've addressed it and we know it's addressed in the plan and we know that we're going to get to it. And so I just try to make sure that we get to those things that are pertinent and that can have, and I really talk about life insurance in that way a lot because I've seen people, you know, lose insurability in, in, in 12 months. So, you know, stuff like if, if there's a problem that can come up where we can lose the availability of one of the solutions, then I want to make sure that we deal with that sooner than later. And so what is the once you're out of the initial process, but you're into the the ongoing for the rest of the year? Like what's the is there a planned cadence for I guess how, how often you're doing meetings or how often you're doing calls or check-ins? I don't even know all the different ways that you're you're connecting with them. Like what's, what's the structure to it? So we are actually updating that now because I, at first I was doing, you know, we do the 30 day, I give the plan and then we wouldn't talk for a few months because they were working on those goals. But I noticed that if we don't talk, if I don't talk to the clients, at least, you know, like a, like they hear from me to check on them, then sometimes they're putting the things off in the plan until, you know, day 89 and they're trying to finish everything. I was like, that's not the way we need to do this. So um, I'm updating the way that we communicate now. We're going to put together a service calendar. I know that there's certain things that, you know, certain times a year, like when we're doing open enrollment, I get a lot of questions during open enrollment. So we know that we need to schedule time there. I get a lot of questions, you know, at year end, I get a lot of questions during the first quarter when we're talking about taxes. So there's, 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 you know, I have, for some reason, I don't know why, but I have a, a large number of educators as clients. So summer times are, are you know, I, that's when I tackle some of the issues that they have. So basically what I'm doing is developing a service calendar to make sure that we have on-time conversations throughout the year based on the time of year. And, and so what are you envisioning that turns into? Is that still going to be like quarterly meetings or check-ins just on this structure? Or are you trying to aim for more often than quarterly? Like maybe, maybe a little, maybe, maybe every other month or maybe once a month, depending that. So I'm, I'm working through that with my business coach right now too. So she was, we're talking about how often, cause, cause, and, and this is just 
and I'll give you an example. Because when I was when I was working at the other firm, we would do quarterly performance reviews with clients. That's just kind of you know that's kind of what most people do. Yeah, I, quarter. We've been doing quarterly statements for like fifty years, so we do quarterly reviews. Yep. And so when I asked my clients, I was like, you know, how often would you like to meet? They're like, really, you know, I don't need to see you every quarter for this. I was like. Sounds good to me. I said, how often would you want to meet? They're like once or twice a year. So that's how I got on the investment piece that I only meet with them once or twice a year. So I need to do that same thing with my financial planning clients. When we put this together, how often would you like to meet? What's overkill? And so right now it's it's been shaken out to about every other month is when I'm talking to them, but I might get an email about one-off question like, hey, what about this? And then I just answer that email. So I haven't had a ton of yeah. So I don't know if that quite answers the question, but that's how it's going now. So I don't know if we're going to say, okay, Mr. Client, Mrs. Client, you guys have been clients for, we made it through the onboarding. We've done this for 30 days. Now we're following up for the let, this 30 days after you've been starting to implement your plan. So I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know yet. I don't know what that looks like. Cause I think I need to hear from my clients to make sure that I'm doing what they want. And again, like, what are you like, what are you getting into to talk about every, like checking in with them every, every month or two? You know, as you said, like performance reviews, we can do quarterly, but even clients at some point don't want it quarterly because there's not, not that much to talk about. It doesn't change that much. Like, what are you talking about to talk to clients six, eight, 12 times a year on financial planning issues? Like, just what is that? What does that look like in practice? And I guess really, do you, do you run out of things after you've, done that for a year and had a whole boatload of meetings in the first year? You would think so, but no, because just the other day, like, okay, let's say this. I got an email from the client the other day. Hey, um, just found out my dad has cancer. We're looking for some options in life insurance. We don't know what we can do. Can we set up a time to talk? Yeah, let's do it. Just found out my daughter got accepted to this school. We're trying to figure out what the best way, you know, we didn't, we don't have any money saved for college, but we're trying to figure out what's the best type of loan for us to do. What, what are we going to go over? That's another question. Hey, my mom, my cousin just retired. They don't know what they're, you know, he, he needs to talk to someone about retirement. And so these are just, it's just an open line of communication. I mean, but I don't get bogged down, which is crazy. Cause I know it seems like when you have that kind of, you know, clients just contact you all the time, you think like you're going to have a ton of them, but I think just life events happening in my clients, my financial planning clients' lives lead to us talking more than we normally would. Do you have a sense then as to how many clients you can serve or support and and handle this in this model? Like, is there some point where you you tap out? Yes. So we are right now. I have fifty six households and about fifteen planning clients. I think we've got 15 planning clients. So I'm reaching capacity right now. And that's why we're trying to change the system that we have. Cause I think it's all about the, the system. So how often we talk kind of planning that out. Cause I don't think everybody needs to, not everybody has wanted to talk to me for, you know, an hour to talk about their plan. So just trying to figure out what is going to be the best model for growth. Cause we're going to grow. And I don't know if this model currently is sustainable the way we're doing it. Just, you know, 55 households is another 56 households isn't a lot with 15 planning clients. That's, you know, it's, it's not really. And meaning the, the rest are, are AUM clients or like AUM only clients or AUM, like 41 are AUM and planning 15 are planning only. 
No, no, 50, 55 of them are AUM only. 55 households are AUM only, and those 15 are financial planning. Of those 15, I believe we manage assets for six of them. How has that evolved of like having AUM only clients versus planning only clients or, or planning primary clients? We've been talking a lot about the planning model. So where did where did a big base of AUM clients come come into the business over the years? They came from being here from local families here in town, like a lot of the AUMs from from local businesses. So when I worked at Principal, we had a large employer here in town that we ran their their retirement plan. So a lot of the people had questions about the plan. And since we ran the plan, I knew all the ins and outs of it. So that's where a large part of the AUM came from. AUM for us is probably around 10 million right now. I, I say that and I'm always scared to say stuff like that because people immediately go look at your ADV. But yeah, so we're about 10 million right now. And we, we, we update our ADV on an annual basis. It likes a little, it's okay. Yeah, so, so we're about 10 million right now. And uh, that is the easier part of the business because we have, you know, you know how it works. It, it's pretty easy. So it's not as, as involved as the financial planning piece. So what surprised you the most about trying to build your own advisory business as you like, actually made this transition to go out on your own? I'd say that the, the, the biggest surprise was, I, I almost want to say the freedom <laughs> because it's just, it's just like, you know, the, the freedom that we've had to be able to create the things that we feel are going to be able to impact people's lives. And that biggest thing is the podcast. Like, I think that like, that was the biggest surprise, being able to have some creative ability that I didn't have when I was under the, the pretense of the, the, the larger firm. What was the low point in the journey for you? I'd say the low point was about, I'd say about after the end of the first, after the end of the first year, I was like, what in the world did I get myself into? Like, what am I doing? <laughs> like I had, I had a, cause there's, you know, when we're, we're leaving the firm, there's a lot of people that clients said, oh yeah, we're, you know, we, we love you. We're going to come with you. And then, so after the first 12 months and I, you know, I got the handful that were going to come the majority of them didn't come. I was like, oh wow, what do I do now? Like I was kind of planning on, you know, a lot of people coming and, and, and not as many people came. And that was, you know, I, I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm looking at my wife and I'm like, well, you know, she's like, well, you're going to be all right. You know, everything's going to be all right. And I was, she's like, you know, just, just keep doing what you're doing. I said, you know what? You're right. It was just a, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a scary time because I didn't know exactly what to do next. And then we made the change to be, when I first started the firm, we were, we weren't fee only. Uh, and then we made that change uh, immediately after. And after that first 12 months of being fee only and being in, involved with XY, quite frankly, made a huge difference. I go to the conference that first year in 2018 and make some connections there and some lifelong friends that I, that I met at the XY conference in that first that uh, first year helped me get through. I was on the phone after 20, all of 2019, talking to advisors from XY, getting encouraged from them, hearing what they're doing, helping me um, just just so much and, and letting me know that I'm not out here, you know, I'm in business for myself, but not by myself. Mm. Oh, I like that. I'm, I'm in business for myself, but not by myself. That's a, I, that's a good line. I like that. It does make the powerful point though, of just you know, whatever it is, like XY Planning Network, NAPFA Financial Planning Association, you know, like there's lots of lots of different groups out there that you can 
join in various contexts, but just having that support network, that peer network, like whatever that, whatever that is for you is to me so crucial in getting going as a, as an advisor. And it's, it's one of the indirect challenges that comes up in the independent world in particular, you know, as, as you lived, like, look, when you're getting going in large from environment, while, while there may be uh, for at least some firms, like a high failure rate and a lot of sales and a lot of challenge and, you know, the proverbial or literal cubicle farm of all the people that are in the plate with you. The, the positive thing is like, you are actually sitting in a cubicle farm with a whole lot of other people who are going through exactly what you are going through and, and, and you can connect with them and you can commiserate with them and you can find some support with them. And, and when you do it in an independent channel, uh, some or all of that goes away. And, and if you don't, take the time or effort to recreate some kind of peer group support system around yourself, it, it gets really lonely really quickly. And I, and I think that's what was affecting me the most. So we're in 2018. We started the firm in 2017 in November, 2018, we get all the way through the end. And, you know, I, and I didn't have as many people come as I thought were going to come, but we had XYPN live that year. And not only was it just, you know, going to the conference, but I was able to connect with the largest group of black advisors that I had ever, that largest fee group of black fee only advisors that I'd ever seen in my life ever. Like, and that in itself was one of the biggest like takeaways. I remember being so excited to see, you know, 10 other black planners, like you gotta be kidding me. Like, and, 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 and I said 10, yes, I was excited to see 10. And so excited that we took pictures. And I mean, it was, it was like a, it was, it was a big deal. I'm telling you, it was a big deal. Uh, when we went to XYPN live and we had the, uh, the deal over at the, uh, the city museum. I mean, we took a picture together. I mean, we, we, we all, I still talk to almost every one of the people from the pictures that I took with them. And those relationships, you know, we're talking together on Twitter. We're talking together on some Slack groups that we have. We have a monthly call with another group of of black and brown advisors that I met from XYPN. Like we are involved in each other's lives, practices. And that all happened because I went to a place where they were and 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 it made all the difference in 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 uh I, I believe in my practice. So as you look back and anything you wish you'd done differently in this path? Like in, anything you know now that you wish you could tell you from five or 10 years ago? Yeah. Do it sooner. Like I should have done it sooner. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's always cliche to say that, but I think, you know, I really started to realize how much information I had learned over the years of working around the industry. Like I had learned so much. And when I, when I, when I started to talk to people, I started to realize like, wow, I, I did learn a lot. And I, I don't think I realized how much I was learning by just being at some of the places I was at. I learned incredible. I mean, love principle, nothing bad to say about them. I learned a great deal about insurance there and about retirement planning and about, I, I learned a great deal of stuff there. I learned a lot about Edward Jones. Like I learned a lot at Edward Jones. Like, I mean, it didn't work out there, but like after you go knock on someone's door, <laughs> you have no fear of anything. Like you, so I, I, you know, I think that I said do it sooner, but I think everything happened in time. I, I think just the 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 number one thing is 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 having a little more faith in myself. Sometimes I, I was I beat myself up and, and and think I should know. I think I just 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 trusting myself a little more, which just reiterates the the 
the earlier comment that it is so much of this just comes down to our own self-confidence and kind of our our own self-belief of like yes i'm really charging this much and i'm and i'm really worth it like it really is valuable and i'm going to make it because i'm providing a valuable thing in the marketplace and i'm charging a fair rate for it yep i, I think like i remember like even when i was asking someone for a hundred bucks like you know we're do this a hundred dollars a month and i remember like being there and like like cringing, like, oh man, I'm going to have to ask them for a hundred bucks. Now I say 300 and you know, it's like, you know, I'm 500 for this, 300 for that. And, and it's like, this is what I pay. If you can't, you know, if you don't want it, then that's fine. But I mean, I, I don't even budge on it. Like, it's not even like I, and it, that just came from time. Like, like we said before. So what advice would you give newer advisors and, and perhaps in, in particular, newer advisors of color looking to to come into the industry and, and get going today? I'd say the most important thing is to find a network of people that are going to help you. You have to find some people that are going to be there for you, that are going to check in on you, that are going to send you that text message, that are going to send you that encouraging word, but that are also going to challenge you when you do something that you shouldn't do or a business decision that you want to make. So I think finding your tribe is going to be so important for you. It's a must. You got to find that. You got to find that that group of people that 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 you can lean on for support outside of your family and hopefully it's a group of advisors of color that can help you and be there as a resource to lead and direct you and through this 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 tough industry. <laughs> that's what I think. I think that's I mean as I as I think about everything that we've been talking about, the biggest impact has been the, the relationships that I've made. And just in practice, like where, where do advisors of color go for that? Yeah. I, I mean, that one is the tough one. Cause there's not like a place where you can go. I was fortunate enough to meet a lot of them when I went to XY. Like I, I really was like, I was really blessed. I know that they have quad a, I know they have, we have, you know, there's a large group of us in XY. I think, you know, looking out, just reaching out to people on, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, advisors of color. There's not like a directory. I mean, I know there's a, a, a directory called CHIP, which is changing how individuals prosper. I know that there's there's a large directory of, of black, and fin- uh, black and brown financial advisors there, but that is probably the biggest issue. There's no place for us to go find that place. Now you need to go find them. I just don't know where to tell you. So I, I guess the the social social media is a place where I've looked. If you reach out to me, I'll, I'll get you directed to, you know, a couple of people. I don't, you know, I, 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 that's, that's the only way I did it. I mean, I met outside of the people that I met at the XY conference, I met the other people from social media. That's, that's how I met everyone that I met. Well, for, for folks who are listening, this is episode 187. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 187, we'll have links out for XYPN, for Quad A, for Chip. I guess for for Emily's website, if you want to reach out to him directly, or we'll we'll put it we'll put his Twitter handle there, so you can uh, so you can ping him that way as well. So, Emlyn, what what comes next for you? I, I think the the next thing is going to be we want to build something for financial advisors of color. I want to I want to I want to be able to build something for them, whether it's whether it's uh, there, there's a few things that we're thinking about, but we want to build something. So that we can help other advisors of color get into the industry, stay in the industry, and I think it 
it, it's something that's that that, uh, that I've I've been kicking around for a long time. So that's what that's what that's what's next. We we got to build it. We need to be more accessible. People need to see us. So you know, I, I'm I'm looking to do more speaking engagements so I can have some more visibility for advisors of color. I'm looking to you know do. I've been getting a lot more newsletter. Uh, I mean, uh, news exposure. So just trying to make let this let continue with the momentum that we have from the events that we've had happen that started this and continuing there to 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 uh, speak and be the voice for advisors of color and, and, and trying to be the advocate to help us change this complexion of wealth. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, and one of the things that always comes up is, is even just the word success means different things to different people. So as, as you're, you're building a successful business and gaining your traction and getting going, how do you define success for yourself at this point? I define success by being able to make meaningful impact in the families that I'm helping. Like it's not a dollar amount for me. Like I, I don't get chased. I don't, I mean, we, we, we do well financially. We're okay. But making the, 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 the meaningful impact in families of color is, is, is just like that, that I, I wake up every day wanting to do that, wanting to help people that need help and want help. And, and that's how I measure success. How many people have I helped today? I love it. I love it. I can't wait to see where it goes for you next as you build further from here. Thank you. I, thank you. I'm excited. I think the industry is ripe and ready for the change that's coming. I think we have some very, very good leaders in the industry that are, that are, that are giving uh, opportunities to advisors of color to be on their platform. I thank you for having me on your platform. And, and, and uh, I've been, I'm a long time listener. <laughs> I'm excited, Michael, not only for my future, but for the future of the industry and what we're going to do. I know things are going to change and I know we're going to be in the middle of it. And I said, we will be in the middle of those changes that are happening and, and the industry is going to be better for it. Well, well, amen. I appreciate you so much, Emlyn, for, for joining us here on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks for having me, Michael. Absolutely. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.